Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter number 7. We're talking about the question, what is the right thing to do? How do you determine what is the right thing to do? And then once you determine it, how do you do it? What we've discovered is that sometimes the right thing to do is obviously clear. You don't really have to think about it. It seems that God has put it in your gut. You know what is the right thing to do. But then there are other times when the right thing to do is not so clear. It's very difficult to discern. We're going to look at the life of a man today who God was afraid. God was afraid he would do the wrong thing. And so he had to take some measures. God did in this man's life. This man's name was Gideon. God took some measures to ensure that this man uh, would do the right thing. Judges chapter 1, we'll begin reading with verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harab. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Two, three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. There is a danger that is to be avoided at all costs. This chapter, if you read the rest of it, you'll find that, that Gideon takes his men, 300 men, and, and I would imagine, the scripture is silent on this, it, 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 mostly silent, the scripture is silent on this, but, but it seems that Gideon might have been thinking what in the world am I thinking? He comes to the camp of Gideon, of Midian, and decides to spy on them. And when he gets there, he finds that the numbers of the people of Midian, the Midianites and Amalekites, and all of their chariots are so numerous, the population is so large, that it is impossible to count them. And Gideon has 300 men. And he's heard God say, he thinks he's heard God say, I'm going to deliver the, the Midianites into your hands through using only these 300 men. 
While Gideon is spying on the Midianites during the night, he overhears a conversation. Now, he and his spies are very close to some of the people at Midian. He's very close, and he overhears a conversation between two Midianite men. One of them says, I had a dream last night. I had a dream that, that a loaf of bread came rolling down from the hills and scattered all the Midianites. And the other person, hearing the recount of that dream, said, This is none other than Gideon and the Israelites. They are going to come in and destroy us. And Gideon overheard this, and he took it as a confirmation of what God had already said, which was, Gideon, I will use these 300 men, and I will deliver the Midianites into your hands. But God was concerned. He was concerned about something in Gideon. He was concerned about something in the Israelites. And I will tell you, he's concerned about it with you. He knows us too well. He knows what our tendency is. And when we have done well, when we have even acted out in obedience, God knows the tendency in us in the aftermath of victory or in the aftermath of obedience. And that tendency is that we take credit ourselves for what God has done. Benjamin Franklin one time paid a visit to the Puritan preacher, Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a fireball of a preacher, but he was a short man. And when his house was constructed during colonial times, his house was constructed to fit to his height. Not so much the ceilings, but the thresholds of every door in his house, they were, they were constructed and designed to the height of Cotton Mather. Now, I don't know if they didn't anticipate that he'd have any visitors, or what? I don't know. But one day, Benjamin Franklin went to pay a visit to the Puritan preacher, Cotton Mather. And as he was leaving, Benjamin Franklin was thinking about something, not paying attention to what he did. And, and as he approached one of the door thresholds, which was lower than Benjamin Franklin's height, Cotton Mather said, watch the stoop. And Benjamin Franklin didn't hear it in time, and the, the forehead, his forehead ran slap into the bottom of the, of the door, the top of the door threshold. And Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, that advice has been very useful to me, he wrote. Since that time, I've avoided many misfortunes by not carrying my head too high in pride. Folks, I want you to get this. Pride is the one danger to avoid at all costs, especially when you are trying to do the right thing, when you're trying to discern what is the right thing to do. And even if once you've discovered it, once you're trying to do it, one danger to avoid at all costs is the danger of pride. Now, pride is a complicated thing to study. Um, there are some folks who say pride is all good. And then there are some folks who say, no, all pride is bad. Actually, even in Scripture, pride can be good, but it can turn sinful. It can be something good. For instance, if your child is uh, in school and, and she has taken her first exam, first major exam in a class that she's had at school, and she comes home and she's made a 97 on it. You can be proud of that little girl for the grade that she made. And that is a good kind of pride. When you set a goal for yourself 
And, and it's a challenging goal, a stretching goal, but it is, and a measurable goal, a goal that most people maybe wouldn't achieve, and yet, by God's help, you achieve it. You can, you can take pride in the fact that you have set a goal and achieved that goal. That's a good kind of pride. But very easily, good pride can be ruined into sinful pride. It can, can take a turn that takes us down a road that even though it started out as, sometimes as good pride, it can turn into evil pride. Verse 2 of chapter 7 is a pivotal verse in understanding this entire chapter of what God is doing in the life of Gideon and the Israelites. Verse 2 says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. And here's the emphasis. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Did you hear that? In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, you announce now to the people that anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Now, Gideon is standing as the commander-in-chief of an army of over 30,000 men. And he's looking at these people, and he hears what God says, and he turns to him, he says, all right, all of you who are afraid, go home. Now, these are fighting men. My guess is, and it's purely a guess, that Gideon didn't expect anybody to move. Maybe a trickle, maybe a couple here, a couple there, but how amazed he must have been when fully two-thirds of his men turned around and went home. Can you imagine it? He's left with 10,000 men. Now, a 10,000 man fighting force may be formidable depending upon who your opponent is, but if you're Gideon and you're standing on top of a mountain and you've got your binoculars and you're looking at the Midianites who have combined with the Amalekites and the numbers of them are so large that your experts standing there, you turn to them and you say, how many do you think it is? And they said, I don't know. You're looking at that and all of a sudden 10,000 men is nothing. And so you get to sweating a little bit. And all of a sudden God says to you, Gideon, I noticed you have 10,000 men there. It's still too many. You have too many men. We've got to do something to lower the number of the fighting men because even with 10,000, if I give you victory, they will, they will say that they did it by their own power. I know how you are. You see, God knows how we are. God knows that we tend to take credit ourselves. God knows that we, we are so easily prone to take the focus off God and onto ourselves. And so God told him, he said, I want, you to, uh, I want you to do exactly what I tell you. I want you to take the men down to the creek and tell them to get some water. And he said, once you get down there, he said, some of them are going to get down on their knees and they're going to, they're going to stick their lips and their tongue down to the water. He said, I want you to count the number of men who do that. He said, but some of them are going to kneel down and they're going to cup the water up in their hands and lap it up like a dog from their hands. He said, I want you to count the number of men who do that. And the Bible said that when it came down to it, the number of, of men who reached down with their hands, cupped the water, and lapped it up out of, their, out of the palms of their hands was 300 men. And God said, it's going to be with those men that I'll give you victory over Midian. Now let me tell you, by this time, Gideon has to be thinking, what on earth am I doing? Because he's looking at this situation. He has 300 men, absolutely. If he, if he is victorious over the Midianites, it has to be, it has to be 
God. God is taking great measures here to ensure that there is no pride in Gideon. He is taking extreme measures here to ensure that there is no pride in the Israelites when God gives them victory. He knows the human heart. Now let me, let me talk about just a, a little bit about what sinful pride is. What sinful pride is. Sinful pride is excessive belief in one's own abilities. Excessive belief in one's own abilities. And not only is it excessive belief in one's own abilities, but that kind of pride interferes with an individual's dependence upon God. You see, if we think, if I think I can do something on my own and within my own abilities and whatever gifts or talents God has given us, then all of a sudden I can, I can, uh, I can lead myself, convince myself to thinking that whatever victory is achieved, I've done it myself or we've done it ourselves and we take the glory away from God. And the Bible clearly teaches us throughout that that is not the way God prefers to work because in reality, no matter what victory you and I may have, no matter what goals we may achieve, no matter what heights we may accomplish, we can accomplish absolutely nothing without the Lord without his power, without his provision, without his enabling. So sinful pride is excessive belief in our own abilities that takes us away from our dependence upon God and usually results in feelings of superiority. Feelings of superiority. I can do this better than you can. Or uh, my thoughts are better than your thoughts. Or um, anything that you can do, I can do better. And sometimes that, that seeps right into, right into the Christian walk. There are two kinds of sinful pride. There's a worldly pride and there's a spiritual pride. Worldly pride is a pride that can be found in anybody. In fact, it's found in everybody from time to time. It's, it's deep down seated in us and it comes up pretty quickly. It comes up pretty quickly. It's a pride that... that, that uh, that reveals itself in arrogance, in conceit, in, in, in too high of a self-esteem, in being vain, having vain glory. It is uh, an undul, unduly favorable idea of one's own appearance, advantages, achievements, etc., often to the point of being offensive. Pride is lofty. It's the arrogant assumption of superiority in some respect. And, and the worldly pride is the type of pride that everybody has. For some people who are not Christians, it is a pride that says, I don't need God. I don't need God's salvation. I don't need what the Scriptures say. I don't need God's people. That's a worldly pride. But there's another type of pride that most people don't have. Only Christians have. It's called spiritual pride. And this one is really complex. I mean, worldly pride, you can pick it out a thousand miles away, but spiritual pride, boy, that's a lot different. Because you see, there, there comes a point where a Christian who's really serious about God, I mean devoted to God, reading the Bible every day, studying the Bible, praying to God every day, in church every time the doors open, in fellowship in small groups of Christians, trying to learn, trying to fellowship, trying to worship God, and you get to the point where you become proud of your spiritual advancement. And you don't even know it. In fact, one of the 
one of the horrible characteristics of spiritual pride is we get to the point that we become proud of, our spirit, of the spiritual heights that we have attained and we don't even realize that we've done it. And we just kind of feed off of it to the point where one by one the people we're around do see it. It's spiritual pride. I've told you before about C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. You remember me telling you about that? You have this, uh, this, this uh, supervisor demon who's writing letters back and forth to an apprentice demon, this young demon who's trying to seduce people away from Christ. And they're writing back and forth. This, this uh, apprentice demon, he's working with one particular family, trying to get them to do wrong, but he can't get them to do wrong. They're a godly family. They're trying to do what's right. And he's writing to his, his uh, supervisor, demon, and he says, I, I can't get them to stop reading the Bible. I can't get them to stop doing right. I can't get them to stop loving Jesus. And he said, I'm at my wit's end. And the supervisor, demon, says, well, don't worry about that. Stop trying to get them to stop loving Jesus and just start making them proud of their love for Jesus. That's all you have to do. Spiritual pride is a killer it will take a straight-A Christian and knock them down to lower than F level. It will take a person who, who is, is stronger in her relationship with God than she's ever been, and it will, it will rip the foundations right out from under her. That's spiritual pride. Some people say that this kind of pride is the pride that undergirds every sin that a Christian will ever commit. Spiritual pride. The Roman Catholic Church, enlisting their seven deadliest sins, say that pride is the, is the foundational sin, that sin which, which leads to all other sins. I think they may have that right. And the Bible has so much to say about pride. It warns us in so many places. You get an idea from Scripture how serious God is about this one particular sin in the life of not only non-Christians, but especially Christians. In fact, just, let me just give you kind of a, a, a non-exhaustive list. Psalm 10, verse 4. In his pride, the wicked does not seek God. Pro, Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 3, 34. The Lord mocks proud mockers, but he gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 8, 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil, but I hate pride and arrogance, says the Lord. Proverbs 13.10, pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 6, verse 16, these six things the Lord hates. And the first thing he mentions is a proud look. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who realize that even at our best, we're right on the verge of spiritual bankruptcy. I want you to think about that. Right at your best, when you are the best Christian you can be, you're right on the verge of spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit recognize that. The haughty in spirit see that they're growing in their relationship with the Lord and they become proud of what they have 
done. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, For I say through the grace which has been given to me to everyone who is among you, stop thinking of yourself in terms of pride beyond what you ought to think. James chapter 4, James is the Lord's half-brother. He says, But the Lord gives more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from God the Father, it is from the world. And one of the most stinging passages about pride is found in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 14. In these verses that I'm about to read for you from Isaiah 14, he's talking about the king of Babylon. And he says to the king of, it's God, Isaiah quoting God, speaking to the king of Babylon. And he says, he says to him, I, 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 I gave you a place of honor, but you lifted yourself up and now you have fallen. And as we look at that passage, not only does that scripture reveal to us something about the king of Babylon, but now we know, looking back through the lens of the New Testament, that the passage is also about what Satan, how Satan came to being Satan. God created Lucifer, this angel, and he was in heaven. He had authority in heaven, but he decided in his pride to elevate himself to the position of God, a position that he never deserved, no one does but God himself, and the Bible says that he fell. Now listen to this passage. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. You know what Hebrew is for morning star? Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You, once, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. They say, is this the one who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The one who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home? What is, what is Isaiah attacking there? What is God through Isaiah attacking? He's attacking the pride. He's attacking a pride that lifts, that lifts a person up above what he or she ought to be lifted to. And so here's Gideon. God is afraid of this thing. He knows that this kind of pride will ruin Gideon. Ladies and gentlemen, he knows that this kind of pride will ruin you and me. He knows it. And so he will sometimes put you in a position where for you to overcome the situation you're in will insist that we realize that it's all God and not you. Sometimes God will put you in an impossible situation so that when you come through it, you will know that God is the one who has done it and not you yourself. Some of you are in that position right now. You're in that position right now. You're in a situation that is absolutely impossible. You have tried to work it out. You have tried to, to resolve the problem to the best of your ability. You thought you were able to handle it. You have found out you can't handle it. And, and let me tell you, if it will make you feel any better, God has put you in this position where you can't handle it. 
And he's not done it to hurt you. He didn't put Gideon in this position to hurt Gideon. He put him in this position so that Gideon would not take the credit for the victory. God does not want you and me taking the credit for accomplishments or victories or achievements or attainments. He wants the glory to himself. Gideon was willing to go with just 300 men. It was humanly impossible, but impossible, listen to this, impossible is exactly where God wanted Gideon. And let me tell you something else. Impossible is the situation where God does his best work. And he wants to do that in you. But the one thing that will tear that apart, and I mean tear it totally down, is human pride. You ever heard the name Edwin Hubble? The, the Hubble telescope was named after him. He was an absolute brilliant scientist, astronomer. He was a genius. When he was in school, not only was he a, an academic genius, made straight A's, but he was an athletic uh, champion. Everything that he participated in, I mean, he, it might as well have been, uh, uh, you might as well just go ahead and give him the gold medal before you even start because he's going to win it. He was that kind of an athlete. He was that kind of a, of a straight A student. When he went to college, he went to a, a college that, that focused on the study of the universe. It was at a time when, when every scientist unanimously believed that there was only one galaxy, and that galaxy was the Milky Way, the one in which we were in. And it was Hubble, Edwin Hubble, who, who wrote a landmark paper that, that established that not only was, were there more Milky Ways, but there were millions of Milky Ways just like the one in which Earth, our solar system, is located. That had never been heard before. And then he came out with another paper. He was the first scientist to ever say that the universe is expanding in every, every direction at an enormous speed that had never even been considered before. And now it is established as the truth. That was Edwin Hubble. You'd think that all of the th those things would establish him and, and, and those things enough, would be enough for him to be satisfied with where he was, but in his pride, they weren't enough. And so he started coming up with things that weren't true to tell people. For instance, he claimed that he spent most of his late 20s and early 30s as a prestigious lawyer in Kentucky and that he never, ever lost a case. The fact of the matter is, during those years, he was a teacher, a high school teacher in Indiana. He didn't even live in Kentucky. He boasted that in World War II, he was in the fight, and he bravely led frightened men to safety across the battlefields of France. The truth was that he arrived in France in World War I only one month before the end of the war, and he probably never heard a gunshot. He bragged about how he had taken on an exhibition with a world-class boxer and he had surprised the champion with an amazing knockdown punch. That also was not true. What on earth? He'd already accomplished so much. God had already given him so many gifts and abilities and wisdom and knowledge. Why would he do this? Because in his pride it wasn't enough and he had to have, he had to have something to beat the last story. He allowed pride to get a hold of him. Some of you have read some of John Ortberg's work. 
in one of his books, John Ortberg talks about the, the uh, chief executive officer, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He and his wife pulled into a service station to fill up their automobile with gas. And as he was filling up the car in gas, he went in to pay for it. And when he came back out, he noticed his wife was talking to a service station attendant there at the, at the filling station. And it seemed like she was pretty chummy with him. When he got back in the car after he gassed up the car and paid for it, he was asking her who the man was. And, and he was a, a, a man that she used to go to school with in high school many years ago. In fact, not only did she go to school with him, there was a time when she dated him. And this man is a filling station attendant. They went going down the road. That CEO, he was thinking of a thousand different things in his mind. And finally, as they went down the road in silence, he said, I, I bet I know what you're thinking. She said, what do you think I'm thinking? He says, you're thinking that you're so thankful that you married a CEO. And she said, actually, what I was thinking is that if I had married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be a filling station attendant. <laughs> God wants to do great things in you. He does. I, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what you've done, where you've been. God wants to do great things through you. But the moment, listen to me, the moment that you think you can do it without God or the moment that you want the spotlight rather than Him is the moment the great things fall apart. Gideon, you have too many men. Let's go from 30,000 to 300 and let's see how that works. We're about to have an invitation. During this invitation, we give people the opportunity to make a decision in their lives related to the Lord. Some of you have never invited Jesus Christ to be your Savior and your Lord. And this morning, in your heart, you know, because the Holy Spirit has is, is laid a heaviness in your heart, you know that this is the time that you need to come and invite Christ to be your Savior. And when we stand and we start to sing, I invite you to move out from where you are and come to this altar of prayer. And we have people who can help you as you pray to invite Jesus into your heart. It'll be the greatest decision you'll ever make. Most of the people in this room have already been saved. Some of you, though, have been saved, but you're not a member of a church. You're not officially a member of a church, either because you haven't been baptized or Maybe you were a member of a church somewhere else and then your family moved here, but you just haven't moved your membership yet. And you need to do that. You need to do it today, maybe. And when we stand to sing, you'll have the opportunity to make that decision. For some of us, we need to walk the aisle, maybe spend some time in prayer at the altar, and, and it's for some concern that has nothing to do with our salvation and nothing to do with church membership. But it has everything to do with your relationship with God. And it's not anybody else's business. may not even be my business. But it's business between you and God. And you need to deal with it here. Will you do that? Will you follow what God is leading you to do? What is it? Do you know? You do. You do know. Our Heavenly Father, 
I pray for every one of us here in this room. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would move in such a way that lost people would come for the purpose of being saved. That saved people would come to join the church. That people who are in a relationship with you but have some decisions to make, some struggles to pray over, that they would come and fill this altar. Lord, I pray that this would be a time of decision when lives are changed. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.